even though this is only my second time up here, it's a blessing to be able to uh, fill in for our rabbi and to bring bring the word of the Lord to the congregation. So I'd like to start out by inviting you to uh, join me in the book of Romans, chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles or your phones, pull it out and, and let, let's, uh, let's read that. Romans, chapter 3, and we're going to start with verse 10. As it is written, there is no righteous person, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues, with their tongues, they keep deceiving. The venom of asps is on their lips. Their mouth is, is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And they do not know the way of peace. There is no fear of God before their eyes. How's that for gospel encouragement? Don't those words fill you with joy and pride? It kind of makes your chest puff up with pride, doesn't it? Doesn't it? If you're experiencing any of those feelings, God help you. We can pray for you after service. These words, though, should fill us with fear and dread to realize that this is our condition before a righteous and holy God. We can't even make it out of the womb without suffering the effects of sin. As the psalmist declared, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And no one is spared from this malady, not even those who God calls and uses mightily for his purposes. I think we all can call Paul a righteous and godly man. I'm sure you're all familiar with his conversion story. Then known as Saul of Tarsus, he persecuted and even murdered the followers of Yeshua. On his way to Damascus to arrest believers, Yeshua appeared to him in a bright light from heaven. After this experience, he became zealous for Yeshua. God used him greatly to spread the good news of the gospel to the Gentile world. And many were saved. Despite this miraculous conversion and very successful ministry, though, he still struggled with the sin condition. Paul expresses this helplessness when describing the sinful nature within man. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. O wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? And I can really relate to that dilemma. Uh, sometimes it seems like a never-ending battle for the mind and my actions, and Satan 
uses every opportunity to shame and accuse me of my sin. And the scripture tells us that the devil, our adversary, prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And often I feel like I've been devoured too many times to count. And I find myself crying out, God help me, wondering when or even if relief will come. Will I ever be able to overcome? And in these times of distress, I hear the words, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And it's in this knowledge that I can declare, as Paul did, Thanks be to God through Yeshua, our Messiah. This sinful condition, though, is nothing new. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, as we've been reading these last couple of weeks. And as we studied last week, Adam and Eve lived in perfect harmony and fellowship with God. The creation was perfect in every way. They communed with God face to face. The seventh day of rest was never intended to end. Adam would effortlessly till the ground and produce food and beauty in God's creation. I'm sure you've all heard of the boasting of our brothers down in Texas that everything grows bigger in Texas. But I'm sure that they would be put to shame to see Adam's vegetable garden. And whenever I go to the botanical gardens, I'm just amazed at the creativity and beauty that the gardeners have produced by arranging plants and trees in, in intricate designs that are beautiful and pleasing to the eyes. But I'm sure these would pale in comparison to Adam's plantings. Eve would painlessly conceive and bear children. I was at the birth of each one of our ten children, and that included eight cesarean sections. I remember one cesarean. I was positioned so that I could see Stephanie hold her hand, but I could also see everything that was going on in the surgical procedure. Stephanie, however, was draped behind a sheet so that she could see me, but she couldn't see what was going on. But with the epidural, she was wide awake. And only thing she could feel was some pressure and tugging during the procedure. And it always amazes me the intellect that God has given to man to invent and create procedures and tools that, in, in a large extent, counteract or circumvent the effects of sin. Because of sin, we have complications in childbirth. And before these procedures were invented, often the baby would die, and sometimes even the mother. But as the surgeon cut away through the layers down to the uterus, blood started squirting from blood vessels that had been severed. And you can imagine my terror as I tried to not freak out, not cause distress or anxiety on Stephanie, and not get sick and faint, of course. <laughs> but the surgeon calmly asked the nurse 
for a tool which he skillfully used to cauterize the blood vessels and stop the bleeding, seemingly unfazed by what was going on. And Stephanie, of course, was oblivious to anything that had just happened. And although I do not know and can't, I can't experience, I couldn't experience the pain that uh, Stephanie and other women have gone through in childbirth, I could see firsthand of what she went through. Yet despite the pain of childbirth and the joy of bringing a new life into the world to love and care for, it makes it all worth it. Each child is a blessing from the Lord, an important part of our family. In contrast, Adam and Eve were to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth in a perfect and pristine environment without the effects of sin. No death, no sadness, no pain, no sickness, no pain in childbirth, no complications in childbirth. Can you even imagine such a time? I, I have no words to describe what that might have been like. But however, this utopia was relatively short-lived. We're not told how long Adam and Eve were in this perfect state, but it was sometime less than 130 years, which was the age that Adam was when Seth was born. And although Genesis does not account does not tell us when Cain and Abel were born, it's commonly believed that they were born after the fall and after Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. So in this very short time, at the beginning of history, Adam plunged all of creation under the curse of sin. And through Adam's fall, all mankind became utterly corrupt. And our wickedness continues to grieve an almighty and holy God. Beginning with Adam's fall, mankind continues to repeat a pattern of rejecting God and falling into sin. This in turn incurs the wrath of God as punishment, but it always ends with the redemption of his people. Even after God pronounced punishment on Adam and Eve and the serpent, he promised redemption through the seed of the woman. God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Theologians call this verse the Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel. And the Westminster's Dictionary of Theological Terms, not a short title, describes this first gospel as a reference to the statement in Genesis 3.15, which has been taken by some biblical interpreters as predicting the defeat of evil by the victory of Jesus Christ, and thus as the first promise of the gospel of the coming Redeemer. Praise God for that. So we see that this seed has physical and spiritual meaning. It's physical because the salvation would come through the line of one of Eve's offspring, and spiritual because the ultimate salvation would come through our Redeemer, 
Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen? When Cain and Abel were born, Eve must have felt that one of them must be the seed that God had promised would crush the head of the devil. It all fell apart, though, when Cain murdered his brother Abel. Abel was dead, and God had cursed Cain and sent him away. What a disappointment. Although the death of Abel and, and, and the curse of Cain surely caused intense sadness for Adam and Eve, God kept his promise and provided a new son. When Seth was born, Eve declared, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. And after this, it seemed like things were turning around. After Seth's first son Enosh was born, the scripture says that men began to call on the name of the Lord. God had indeed given us a continuation of the godly line. And the genealogy of Seth shows that his line was the godly line and the promised seed. However, things would not last. Man would repeat the cycle of the fall. They would again turn away from God's ways and follow the desire of their hearts, as Jeremiah prophesied. The heart is more deceitful than all else. And is de desperately sick. Who can understand it? So just ten short generations from Adam, the wickedness of man had become so great. So we can see it, it did not turn around for the better. As always happens, we have a way of screwing up God's perfect plan, don't we? So God determined to destroy man and all things on the earth. So what caused this to happen? There are a few interpretations, but I believe it was the result of the corruption of the godly line of Seth. If you can all please turn to Genesis 6, we will start reading in verse 1. Genesis 6, verse 1. <clears throat> Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore children to them. Those were the mighty men of old, men of renown. As I said before, there are probably three main interpretations of who sons of God were. I believe, though, that it referred to the godly line of Seth and that the daughters of men to the descendants of the god ungodly line of Cain. The next few verses describe this corruption and the punishment that God would bring. So in verse 5, we'll continue. 
Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. The Lord was sorry that he had ever made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I ever made them. That's interesting, isn't it? Do you think God was really sorry that he created man? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I kind of relate that to how we as parents kind of experience things with our children. We know our children are not perfect. We are not perfect ourselves, right? We know they're going to screw up. We know they're going to sin. Are we grieved when that happens? Yeah. So I think this describes the grieving heart of God that his creation had turned away from him. And this also seems to be a very similar situation when the daughters of Moab enticed the Israelites to worship Baal Peor in Numbers 25. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to commit infidelity with the daughters of Moab, for they invited the people to sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel became followers of Baal, Baal of Peor. And the Lord was angry with Israel, and the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the fierce anger of the Lord will turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill his men who have become followers of Baal of Peor. But despite this wickedness of man and the judgment that God declared on them, he did not forget his covenant with Adam and Eve to preserve a godly seed. At that time of all those living, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God established his covenant with Noah to preserve the godly line. He told Noah to build an ark for eight people. Noah, his sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth, his wife, and his sons' wives, as well as all the animals that God instructed them to bring. And I think it's interesting that God did not tell Adam to build as large a boat as you can so that I can save as many people as I can. He didn't say that. He told Noah exactly how to build it and that he was going to only save eight people, Noah and his family. Everything else on the earth would be destroyed by the water of the flood. I'm sure you guys are all familiar with the cute little songs that we sing about Noah and the ark and the animals and we have little toys and it's kind of a fun time in Shabbat school when we talk about all that stuff. And that's fine and good. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not going there. But if that's our only perspective on the flood, we really miss the point. The flood was the, by far the worst punishment that God had ever 
and has ever sent on the earth. The only judgment that will exceed this is the coming day of the Lord. And let's turn to 2 Peter 3, and we'll read about that. Starting in verse 3. Know this first of all, that in all the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues as it has from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by God, by his word, the heavens existed long ago, and that earth was founded out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed by the flooding of water. But by his word, the present heavens and the earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. And I think it's interesting, that last statement, the destruction of ungodly men. We know the flood destroyed everybody. Only Noah and his family were saved. In the end, only the ungodly men. So God, at this time, has preserved his people, his holy, godly people. The flood lasted for 150 days before the water began to recede. And that just is, is unbelievable to me, to think that 150 days. And that Noah and his family were on the ark for a whole year before the ground was dry enough for them to, to come out. Once they did come out, though, Noah offered sacrifices to God, and God sent a rainbow as a sign that he would never again destroy every living thing. However, God, in this promise, acknowledged the sinful condition of man under Adam's curse when he said, the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Despite a fresh new start in this world after the flood, Man was destined to repeat the pattern we have seen repeatedly in this short time in history. Man walks away from God's perfect plan and falls into sin. God righteously judges man's wickedness while keeping his covenant of redemption. We now have the story of, of Ham. And we don't exactly know what Ham did to his father Noah when he was drunk. But it was bad enough that Noah knew what had happened to him when he awoke. And he cursed Ham's son Canaan. Genesis 9 tells us that Ham saw his father's nakedness and told his brothers Shem and Japheth. They took a garment and walking backwards covered up their father's nakedness. And because of this, Noah blessed his two other sons, saying, Blessed be the name of the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his, his servant. 
So we see that the genealogy of Shem, whom God chose to carry on the godly seed, and it ends with the birth of Abraham in our Torah portion. To find out the rest of the story, you'll have to tune in next week. So we've covered a lot of ground, and we've even encountered a few rabbit holes that I've chosen not to go down, such as, did Adam and Eve have children before the fall? Were Cain and Abel the first children of Adam and Eve? The scripture doesn't tell us these things. Who were the sons of God? I told you what I think. Who were the Nephilim? What does Sam do to his father, Noah? And why was his son, Cain, cursed as a result? These are interesting topics, and they're often fun to discuss. But if we focus on these topics, then we miss the point of the scripture. So what is this point? As we've seen, an all-too-familiar all cycle repeat itself. God's perfect plan begins in righteousness. The wickedness of, of man when they fall into sin. The wrath of God and his righteous judgment. And then back to God's perfect plan and redemption. And the cycle always ends and begins with God's promise of redemption from sin and corruption. God is a covenant-keeping God. Amen. We see through Genesis 1 through 11, the covenant kept through the lineages of Adam to Seth, to Noah, to Shem, and to Abram. But even though these men were chosen to be in the godly line, they were far from perfect. Just like everyone else, they had the sin condition. They were sinners. They were evil. As we go back to our opening verse, there is none righteous, not even one. And Isaiah further exclaims, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. A covenant usually involves two parties that come together in agreement for some performance or action. But in our sinful state, we're incapable of entering into that covenant with a sovereign God. If you can turn with me to Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you were formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even 
as the rest. And Romans 5.12 reiterates the sinful condition that came after the fall of Adam. Therefore, just as through man, one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. That includes us. So we are dead in our sin. And the last I knew, dead men could not enter into contracts or covenants. So being dead to sin, what's our duty? What's our responsibility? Can we even do anything? We're called to repentance and to have faith, but we can't even do that in our sinful condition. Praise God that God preserved the godly line and that did, did not end with the physical seed of Adam. The lineage also produced the spiritual seed, the son of promise, God's only son, Yeshua, that in him we may live. As we read in 1 Corinthians 15, For since by man came death, by a man also came the resurrection from the dead. For in Adam all die, so also in Messiah all will be made alive. Praise God. Hallelujah. So let me ask you a question. What are we saved from? What are we saved from? Did someone say sin? Wrath of God? What is, what is sin? Of whose law? The Torah, of God's law. That's right. So who are we saved from? We're saved, we're saved from God, aren't we? We're saved from God. So God saved us from God himself. Can you imagine a criminal convicted in the court of law for murder? But after the judge hands down the guilty verdict and the death penalty, he makes a phone call to his son and says, Son, I've just, I want you to come down to the court. I've just sentenced a man to death, but I want you to take his punishment in the electric chair. And since you will be paying the penalty for his crime, I'm going to set him free. This would be unimaginable, wouldn't it? Could you imagine the family of the person that got murdered when his, their killer got set free? But that's exactly what God did for us. We also read in Scripture, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Messiah died for the ungodly. ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps even a good man, someone may dare to even die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Messiah died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. 
Amen? So let's turn back with me to Ephesians 2, and we'll continue on, starting in verse 3. But God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Messiah. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the high places in Messiah Yeshua. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of grace in kindness toward us in Messiah Yeshua. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. So who does it? God. God does it. It's a gift from God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Messiah Yeshua for good works, that God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Again, praise God. Praise God. God spoke to Noah and told him to build the ark for the redemption of the promised seed from the righteous wrath of God. Yeshua died on the cross as our substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. As John writes, in this is love, not that God loved, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. In the final judgment, God will destroy the creation with fire, as we read earlier. But true to his nature, as a covenant-keeping God, we have hope and eternal life through him and with him. This time it will not be an ark, but the new Jerusalem, the holy city of God. Please turn with me to Revelation 21. And I'm going to close by reading this portion of Scripture. Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven of God, made ready as the bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. 
He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and liars, their part will be in the lake of fire that burns and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the angels who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues came and spoke to me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven of God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like the very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great high wall and twelve gates, and the twelve gates, twelve angels. And the names were written on them, which were the names of the twelve tribes of the son of Israel, sons of Israel. There were three gates to the east, three gates to the north, three gates to the south, and three gates to the east, to the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out in a square, and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod, fifteen hundred miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its walls, 72 yards according to human measurement, which is also angelic measurements. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third Chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were the twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the streets of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need for the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will, will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it in that day, for there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory of and honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, no one who practices abominations and lying, shall ever come into it. But only those whose names are written in the book of life. And may our names be written in the book of life. Amen. And if God is calling you today, don't harden your heart, but answer his call.
Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Father, that you are a covenant-keeping God. We thank you, Father, that despite our sinful condition, you love us. You sent your Son to die for us. Through that righteousness, Father, we can stand righteous before you. Let us feel your presence here today, Father. Be with us. Father, we also lift up to you our brothers and sisters in Israel. Father, the atrocities that they're going through, you, you know what's going on. You know all. And Father, despite what's going on, you still have them in your eye. They are still your holy people. We ask, Father, that you be with them, that you give them strength to endure the hardship. And Father, through this, let many come to know you better and come to know your Son and come to salvation. We pray all these things in Yeshua's holy name. Amen.